This is the Italian American Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I am your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co-host, Dolores Alfieri. And in today's episode, we chat with Robert Orsi, who is a professor of religion and the Grace Craddock Nagel Chair in Catholic Studies at Northwestern University, and also the author of The Madonna, or La Madonna of 115th Street, Faith and Community in Italian Harlem. And Dolores, why don't you tell our listeners what we're going to hear about in the story segment? We have a really great episode as a whole, including our story segment, which goes with the interview we did with Robert. This episode, I feel like, dives into some really magical, mysterious kind of stuff, right? (laughs) Stuff about our Southern Italian way of worshiping that I've always been very intrigued with. So I'm very excited about this episode. And I I think it's stuff that we've kind of touched on before, but we've never really had a chance to dive into it the way we do here. So to complement our conversation with Robert Orsi, we're going to play story segment where I am at the table with my mother and a bunch of my aunts and their mother, who is about to turn 90 in several months, and they're sharing their memories from Southern Italy about their superstitions and dream interpretation. Now, we talked for about two hours. This should be interesting. Yeah. So we will play parts of this conversation in upcoming episodes. But for this one, we mainly focused on dreams and dream interpretation, which plays a really big role in the lives of Southern Italian women, especially. Before we introduce our guest, we'd like to offer a brief word from our sponsor, the National Italian American Foundation. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American podcast. At NIAF, we see ourselves as leaders for the entire Italian American community. We work to protect our great heritage, promote the Italian language, build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, with over a million dollars a year in scholarships and grants, our efforts provide young Italian Americans help in earning a solid education and becoming leaders for tomorrow. To find out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org and become a part of the NIAF family today. All right, now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's episode. Robert A. Orsi is a professor of religion and the Grace Craddock Nagel Chair in Catholic Studies at Northwestern University. He is interested in the development of religion as a subject of inquiry from early modernity to the present and in questions of method and theory in religious studies, which sounds complicated, but our conversation with Robert was very back and forth and had a lot of good flow to it. His scholarship draws on history, ethnography, and psychological theories of imagination and intersubjectivity to study religious practices. His most recent book is History and Presence from Belknap Press 2016. Orsi received his PhD from Yale University, which was another topic that we got into with him because, you know, he came from an immigrant neighborhood and kind of made his way up quite a bit. His work has been supported by such organizations as the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Social Science Research Council, and the Whiting Foundation. And his books have won such awards as the Organization of American Historians, Merrill Curdy Award, Orsi is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and past president of the American Academy of Religion. I'm going to kick it over to Dolores here to give us a little bit of a a short excerpt from his book to bring us into the interview. So we pulled this quote from Orsi's book, The Madonna of 115th Street, Faith and Community in Italian Harlem. Every year, people came from Patterson, New Jersey. They would come every time. They would sleep in our house and eat and drink for four days, five days going on. And everybody in the neighborhood had to clean their house that week and the week before. New curtains and everything. It was the Feast of Mount Carmel. All right, now it's time for the main segment of our show. 
And I'd like to welcome to the episode today our guest, Robert Orsi. Robert is the first holder of the Grace Craddock Nagel Chair in Catholic Studies at Northwestern University and author of The Madonna of 115th Street, Faith and Community in Italian Harlem, 1880 to 1950, among other books. Robert, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Thank you, Anthony and Dolores. It's great to be here. Hi, Robert. I read up on you a bit, and of course, we came across you and your work because you are featured in the Italian Americans series, which we speak often about on this show. And we've actually had many people who've featured on the show. We had Maria Lorena on the show, who of course, wrote the companion book, and even mm-hmm. John Maggio, the writer and director. So it's great mm-hmm. to have you on as well. And um, I know that you grew up in the Bronx, and we love, <laughs> we love to start every show by asking people to tell us a little bit about their Italian American upbringing. I was raised in the Bronx, where I lived until I went off to college. My father is Tuscan. He actually immigrated after the Second World War, although that's a long and complicated story, which we may get into. My mother is Sicilian-American, and she was born on the Lower East Side. And I'd say it was a working-class neighborhood, pretty much half Italian-American and half Jewish, which, as you know, is not uncommon. And as is true in American ethnic history, the Jews in the neighborhood were sort of one step up the rung from the Italians. And I mean, I think relations were fabulous between us. In fact, I was a Shabbos Goy at the local synagogue. I would turn on the lights on Friday night, and I was a Shabbos Goy in the Ah. building. So I would go through the building and turn on lights and take people up the elevator. So the relations were great. And actually, I've been thinking a lot about this recently. I think there was really a model there because, you know, that my Jewish neighbors would read the New York Times. We read the Daily News. It was an interesting mix of ethnicity and class. I mean, of course, this is all tinted by memory. And people from the Bronx are horrible. They just, they have the most romantic love for the Bronx. I try to be critical of that as a historian, but uh, nonetheless, it was a rich childhood. Well, because, you know, the reason I mentioned the Bronx so prominently is, you know, both Anthony and I grew up in New York, a little bit upstate, just right outside of the city. So, you know, we, me, especially growing up, we always went to Arthur Avenue to get our bread and everything like that. And even still we do. And we talked to a lot of guests about the vanishing Italian-American enclaves and neighborhoods. Mm. And when I think of the Bronx, you know, New York, back in the day, and these neighborhoods, you know, I kind of can't help but have that old nostalgia for a time I didn't even live in, you know, (laughs) of these Italian-American neighborhoods. And I think of the Bronx really, of course, as one of those kind of strongholds. I understand the nostalgia. But the nostalgia is dangerous, actually. I think it's not helpful. It, It is a little dangerous because Well, for one thing, I don't know if you or Anthony have ever been to the um, Tenement House Museum down on the Lower East Side. Yes. You know, you can take the tour and you can go into these apartments. You see the apartments were just, I mean, just awful, tiny, 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 and really not, well, you know, dirty and dangerous. And I think that Italians often, they really do romanticize these neighborhoods. So, you know, I wrote about East Harlem, and I think East Harlem, after the Second World War, the Italians began moving out because they could, you know, they could move out to better places and they could move to out to Queens and, you know, up to Westchester. In other words, the nostalgia, I think, has to be tempered by realism. Right. I think that the younger generations of Italian-Americans are thinking the Bronx, thinking they're going to go to Arthur Avenue and get some good food and do that kind of stuff. But I think going further back and I know you talk about this in your book, that Italians, it was rough. It was They had a very rough, and it was nothing. I mean, if you read about it, if you've learned it all about the immigration, what they came with, and my grandmother's told me stories, they were very low on the ladder, let's put it that way. Not a lot of younger Italian-Americans realize that or understand that. And I think it's an important aspect of our history that we should be aware of. Absolutely. I could not agree more, of course, as a historian. And I use the word dangerous advisedly because I think that nostalgia makes for problems of citizenship. I mean, I don't know what else to call it, but I think it can create distortions in the public sphere. So, look, I share the nostalgia. But on the other hand, you know, we were not forced out. Nobody gets forced out by other communities. They choose to leave, really. And it's important to recognize that, I think. I also think Italians being on the low end of the totem pole, I mean, I do think that Italian-Americans, along with African-Americans, were really victimized by urban planning, which is, in my mind, a kind of, that's a dirty word, urban planning, because what it meant really was disrupting and destroying neighborhoods. 
Oh, that's interesting. So, are, meaning what came afterwards, uh, like a justification yeah. kind of thing? No, even just like, well, putting in projects or putting in, you know, just taking out a neighborhood like East Harlem, you know, taking out whole blocks and putting in projects. There's nothing wrong with projects except that it's a terrible, actually, there is something wrong with projects. I mean, they, <laughs> they look inward, they turn away from the street. I mean, I've always argued that there's a terrible, at least up to, I don't know about now, but there's like been a very ambivalent feeling about cities in the United States throughout American history. On the one hand, they've been very enticing. On the other hand, they've been seen as dangerous places. And, you know, even in our current president's use of the word inner city, you hear that. Yeah, I mean, urban planning went in and took out whole neighborhoods and with a real contempt for urban life, I think, built these projects demolished tenements, wiped out neighborhoods, rather than trying to recreate a rich urban life. Robert, before we go further, obviously there's a lot that we can talk about in your book, The Madonna of 115th Street. But before we get into it, tell us from your perspective, from your thought, like what was your goal in writing this book? What were you looking to discover or write about? Well, that's a great question, Anthony, I have to say. So, I mean, I think I wrote the book out of a lot of anger, to tell you the truth. And I think that's not a bad motivation for writing books. So I was angry about the way Italian-Americans got treated in the history of American Catholicism, to start with, because Italians are always viewed as a problem. They were said not to have, not to be good Catholics, not to have a Catholicism, actually. And the, and the story, right from the 19th century on, was that they needed to be Italian-Americans, needed to be sort of educated in the faith. They were overlooking the whole world of Italian-American street life, street cultures with festas. And I mean, they were looking in the wrong place. So I wanted to correct the historical record. Also, I was very influenced by social historians of the period. And I really wanted to tell the story of the people. You know, this was going to be a street up story. It wasn't going to be the story of religious orders or politicians or whatever. It was going to be as close to the streets as I could get. And I guess I, I also wanted, frankly, to correct the record about Italian-Americans. You know, I mean, I, this is not to say that I'm simply a celebrant of Italian-American culture, but it's a rich and complicated culture. Italian-Americans, it's a rich and complicated uh, story. And when I wrote that book, which is now decades ago, I don't think it was as appreciated as it may be today. No, absolutely. And we just had uh, Anthony Tambori on the podcast, Robert, and he was a huge proponent of books and, you know, all things Italian and Italian-American studies. We kind of had this conversation with him and we talked a little bit about how the pen is such a mighty thing and we have the ability in today's world. And like you said, for you, it was decades ago, but obviously people are still talking about it and appreciating it is that we have the ability to go out and do something for a cause, for a reason. And, and, you know, and writing is a powerful way to do it. Like you said, you wanted to kind of set the record straight. People have to do these things because if they don't, we can lose perspective. We can lose valuable things that otherwise people might not have known about. And I think it's great that you did that. And obviously it's a topic that is still like you said, maybe even of more interest today. I mean, we still talk about this a lot on the podcast and now we're in the season of Lent. So again, this is a time that a lot of people are talking about the church. And I remember Dolores, I don't know how long it's been now, maybe nine months ago, but we went to ESPN and we interviewed Tony Reale on the podcast and he hosts a pretty popular sports show and he's pretty adamant about getting his ashes every year and going on the show with the ashes. What the message that he told us was like, I think anyone, especially someone that's younger that has an opportunity and a platform to show their faith kind of has a responsibility to do that. I think that's right. On the other hand, that wasn't my primary motivation, I have to say, to show my faith. I mean, it really was a historian's determination to tell a certain kind of history about religion. And, and one of the interesting things about, I think, what happened in the afterlife of that book was this street-level view of religion, this idea that we're not going to take kind of orthodox views of what religion is. We're not going to look inside the church necessarily. We weren't going to set up a dichotomy, but we weren't going to look inside the church only. And we were going to define religion broadly, and we're going to look at community mores and the way people live and relations, sexual relations, gender relations, all of this. That actually now has become a way of thinking about religious history. And that's been very gratifying to me because I think this study of Italian-American street life showed people that there was another way of thinking about religion in religious history. Street life is kind of articulating something, Robert, that I feel like I just grew up with. 
correct me if I'm misunderstanding what you just said. For me, you know, Catholicism was always and continues to be a very big part of my life. But I would not say that my family is very devout. We didn't get up every Sunday and go to church all together. My parents came here from Italy, and my father was really old-fashioned type where, you know, the men sat outside the church in Piazza while the women went into church, you know, and that, that's its own kind of tradition in its own way. We were very and are still very Catholic. Right. If yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. No, I think that's exactly the point. I mean, the right. point is to not to go in with a kind of normative view of what is Catholicism. I mean, it's not the historian's role to say this way of being Catholic, where the men are sitting in the piazza and the women are in, this is inauthentic Catholicism. Rather, it's to say, what kind of Catholicism is this? Exactly. It's very Italian, like Southern Italian type right. of Catholicism, which makes me think, Anthony and I, we've talked about this in the show before, too, as well. You know, in the Italian-Americans the, in the series that you were in, they might even have been you talking about it, <laughs> where they talk about the fact that when Italians first came here, the, you know, the Irish, of course, dominated the church. And because of our particular brand of worship, we were made to worship in the basement. Yeah, that was me. And yes, that was that, you. Okay, great. That, that is true. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the great church in East Harlem, you know, the one that I wrote the book about, was started because Italians were sick of being in the basement. And after they built the church, they were in the basement. It took a while for them to get up out of the basement. So even after they had built their own church to their own sort of patronal figure, they were still sent to the basement. And just, just to let our listeners know, the idea is basically that the Irish Catholic priests and such just really thought that we were very visceral in our worship. It's not necessarily a worship of the book. Basically, by this time, I think a lot of Irish Catholics had been had become very, you know, they become very regular. They began looking like sort of modern Catholics by the late 19th, early 20th centuries. And Italians had another way of worshiping. Robert, let me ask you this. You mentioned your goals in writing the book. Do you feel that you achieved your goals after you, you put the book out there and since it's been a while now? I do. I mean, I uh, sometimes marvel at that book. I'm very grateful to my readers, let me say. That book is still in print, and that book still gets taught in university and college classes. It's all across the United States, and I'm grateful to my colleagues and to my students who read it and to my readers for reading the book and, and you're reading it carefully and thinking about it and learning from it, but also bringing their lives to it. And my view of reading is that reading is really, it's a relationship. You know, it's like there's the book and then there's you. And then something happens in between you and the book that's neither completely in you or completely in the book. It's like a third space. And I think that happens a lot with the Madonna, that people found their stories in it or rediscovered aspects of their lives or, or developed a critical perspective on Italian-American family life. I mean, because you know, the book, again, is not a celebration. It, you know, it, it speaks very honestly, I think, about the role of Italian women in, in this period, the difficulties and gender relations and so forth. Yeah, I found just in my life and my family that they're speaking of women, there's a very specific role and also even a very specific brand, if I may, of Italian, Southern Italian, if I can start there, worship when it comes to women. If you want right. to talk a little bit more about that, I know you've written a lot about that. Well, one of the ways that I talk about religion, of course, is always in relation to the broader and surrounding society and culture. And, and I, you know, what I was looking at was how do, what's the relationship between women in, at home and women in church? And I think in both cases, women were assigned the responsibility for the moral life of the community. So, I mean, I think of the women looking out of tenement buildings, keeping an eye on the street. Right. But then when you came to second and third generations, I think it got really complicated because second and third generation women often wanted to go off to college and they wanted to have careers or go to work simply. And very often their families either prohibited it or insisted that they go to work to pay for their brother's education. And I mean, I think that's a part of the story too. I think the second and third generations of Italian-American women in this history have a particular kind of story to tell. I mean, obviously, Dolores, you're now, you know, you're a modern Italian-American woman, a contemporary Italian-American woman. But if you go back to the 20s, you know, sort of in between the, the wars and then after the Second World War, I think Italian-American women, it was rough for them to get out of the house and into careers of their own, if that's what they wanted. For sure. <laughs> totally different lifestyle. I don't know if this is something that you can speak to, but the idea of these kind of superstitions and a type of tradition that to me, it's also kind of related to the women. 
But, you know, things like malocchio and stuff like that in our culture that I do think kind of bleeds off of Catholicism and our specific brand of Catholicism. I wonder if in your research you've seen any overlap of that or, or if it's anything that you've touched on or is that just a totally different area that you don't go into? No, no. This is actually the topic of my new book, the book that just came out in 2016 from uh, Harvard University Press called History and Presence. And it's mm -hmm. about, it actually tries to tell a history of the word superstition, basically. And it shows that what we actually mean, what people mean when they say superstition. You know, I always tell my students that they have to understand that when they say superstition, they're actually referring to another way of being religious in the world other than theirs. And it's one that either scares them or they don't think is modern or contemporary or whatever. So it's a very heavily value-laden word. But what I try to argue in there is that Catholics generally have a very kind of, well, the, the language I use in the book is that the gods are present to Catholics in a very immediate way. They're accessible to Catholic senses. I like so that. So Catholics kissing saints, you know, I mean, I grew up with, on Good Friday, they would have the cross out and we would kiss the feet of the cross. And people in East Harlem, they know that the Madonna of 115th Street is there. She's there. Now, they also know she's in other places, but she's there. And uh, so these religions of presence, these are the religions that have been understood to be most intolerable in the modern world. They have like a stain on them. Like it's not yeah. sophisticated. It's not modern. I'm first generation, you know, but I can see it with the older siblings and cousins even. It's kind of laughable to them. But to me, I've always felt very connected to it. What you're saying is resonating with me very strongly. I kind of want to like geek out on this topic for a minute because yeah. it's very real to me. And I don't know why, maybe because I'm younger than everybody else, but it's stuck with me. I always just describe it as, you know, the old Italian ways. No, it's not the old Italian ways. It's broader than the old Italian ways. It's a way of being in the world that from the 16th century forward in Western society and in all the places that Westerns went by missions and by empire, this way of being in the world was understood to be primitive, with quotation marks around primitive, primitive or pre-modern or whatever. And if you were going to be modern and developed and mature, you had to behave in another way religiously, mm -hmm. which was that you had to think of your gods as not being present, but as encountered in the symbolic or the text. And so a whole way of being religious, which is not just characteristic of Italians, it's characteristic of a lot of other people around the world, became defined as unacceptable. And so if you look even to the history of modern Japan, I mean, one of the things that Japanese modernizers had to do, what they did, that they had to do, one of the things that Japanese modernizers were determined to do was to chase the gods really present out of everyday life, to chase them up to the mountains, to chase them out, to forbid them, to condemn them, to politically, to repress them, because they were seen as obstacles to the full development of the nation. I have thought, especially now, you know, new age, spirituality, etc. I'm always looking for ways to let's say, strengthen myself through my particular traditions, which in my case are Italian mm. and Italian-American. And so I've, I've found this, what you're describing as a way of living in the world, which I love that description, you know, where your gods are real. I found it very useful for myself in, in bringing myself closer to a spiritual life. I think that it's something that we can really use in modern life to give ourselves some meaning and, you know, direction and a real anchoring in a life that is deeper, right, than this everyday hustle and bustle. And, you know, even I'm so fortunate to have a lot of Italian Americans living around me. And I'll just tell a quick story. This Sunday, we were having dinner over at my aunt's and my cousin announced, she told me, I hadn't seen her in a little bit, that she's pregnant. It's her aunt also that I'm talking about. Her name is Rena. She said, you know, I got a text three weeks from Rena, three weeks before I told anybody that I was pregnant, even my own mother. She texted her and said, I had a dream last night that you were pregnant. Are you pregnant? Tell me. I won't tell anybody. <laughs> wow. And, you know, my cousin said, you know, no, I'm not because she hadn't even told her own mother yet. But I mean, my aunt knew she was pregnant and she does mm -hmm. things like that all the time. And she's not the only woman I know who does that. And I find that the older I get, the more I'm like that myself. I feel it mm. strengthened in me. And it's not a supernatural power. I think it's just this access to that living reality that I work on being connected to. That's a great way of putting it, uh, Dolores. Access to the living reality that you want to be part of. 
I think that's a perfect way of putting it. Hey, Robert, while we're on this topic, I want to ask you a question, and I don't know if this is any way tied to religion or what you've researched around this, but this idea of Italians getting together on Sundays, you know, whether it be for dinner typically or whatever the case may be, we talk about that a lot. It seems to be one common string that all many Italian-Americans share. Like if you're talking about growing up, everyone always says, oh, we went to grandma's for dinner Sunday. And, you know, Dolores and I are always thinking like the origin of that. And I talked to my relatives in Italy and they said it's a big thing there. And I'm just curious in your research, if you've looked into the origin of that or have learned about the history of that tradition. No, I haven't. Not the specific Sunday tradition, but clearly Sunday is a day of rest. Often it was a day when people, you know, they went to mass. And so, you know, I can understand. And eating together is uh, for Italians. And again, we don't want to be romantic here because we all know that, you know, eating together is also the occasion for arguments and for fights. <laughs> it's and true. It's who true. is not going to be allowed? Who's not talking to who? And who's not going to, who's going to yeah. turn your back at the dinner table to somebody else or whatever? As all of our listeners are cracking up right now. <laughs> so we don't want to romanticize it, but we do have to say that eating together, you know, was fundamental to Italian American life. And, I think we yeah. need more of Robert on the show, Anthony, because I can tell just, you know, by your approach, you're you're very I don't know if skeptical is the right word, but I can tell that you're always asking deeper questions. You want to get be realistic, you know, and I think Anthony and I sometimes have a penchant for the romanticism. You know, we've never done a show, for instance, on vendettas. And we talk all the time about Italian-American family and how much how important it is. But we don't really talk a lot about the relative that hasn't talked to his sister in 20 years, you know, or this one who wronged this one. Right. It's not incidental to this life. I mean, I think it's very important to see it as part of this life. And I mean, I think go ahead and do a show on vendettas and then don't set up vendettas as something that exists apart from the world of religion. I mean, vendettas get totally caught up in the world of religion. That's what I really wanted to do in the Madonna of 115th Street, was to open up the space of the religion to all these other things that are going mm. on. What it meant that Italian-Americans were playing the numbers, because, I mean, again, I'm interested in ways of living. So what is this way of living in which playing the numbers, I could say this, you know, my mother, may she rest in peace, played the numbers all the time. You know, my birthday, my brother's birthday were her numbers. And then when my first child was born, that became the number. You know, that's a way of living in the world. It's not just a silly thing that people do. I'm interested in, A, how vendettas feature into religious life and then playing the numbers. Like, where does that come from? When I say it features in religious life, what I mean by that is that it can't be separated. The, the people who embark on vendettas are also the people who pray. They're mm. also the people who pray to saints. They're also the people right. who understand the gods to be present to them. These are also people who act on the world in a particular way. And vendettas can't be separated out. Or rather, I should say, religion can't be separated out from all those other things. I mean, listen, everything could be connected. And that's why I was asking about dinner, thinking that maybe they went to church and then they gravitated to eat together. And, you know, so I think a lot of these traditions, vendettas, religious traditions. I mean, I think a lot of these things can be somehow steeped together or intertwined or one come from another for sure, which is interesting. On that note, Robert, let's talk for a minute about feasts, because that's obviously like, uh, you know, one of the primary components of your book. But I mean, just in general, like obviously feasts are like a huge part of the Italian culture. I mean, St. Joseph's feast is coming up. It's my grandmother, Josephine's birthday. It's a big deal. But just talk about feasts in general and what they mean to the culture. Well, Southern Italians primarily, although the feasts exist in the North, too. And actually, you know, feasts exist. They exist in many different places. I mean, the idea of taking your gods out into the streets of your community is not unknown. And that's an important way that people are religious. So but looking just at Italian-Americans, you know, mostly they brought these feasts from their villages. Every village had a patronal saint. Every patronal saint had a story about how that saint became attached to this particular village. You know, often it was seen as a miraculous attachment. You know, the saint statue was, there was somebody was moving through the town with a, with the saint statue on a cart and the saint wouldn't move anymore. The horses wouldn't move. The saint had to stay in that town. So they brought these over and then they became focal points for communities. So little groups of people from particular villages and towns would gather around these saints. And then they grew bigger and bigger and they were so unusual. I mean, you have to appreciate, I mean, just put yourself back, you know, 1897, and, you know, you're living on Fifth Avenue and you know that over on the east side, these people are taking these statues in the streets. And, <laughs> you know, it's like 
I remember the first time I went to the Feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, which actually I hadn't gone to as a kid, but I went to East Harlem to the feast. You know, I had gone to Yale, and Yale, we had to study, as part of our training, we had to study the Puritan history. And, you know, Puritans were intensely anti-Catholic, and they really hated Catholics for this kind of religion. I'm sure, yeah. I looked at this feast, and I thought, this is really the Italian-American, this is really the Catholic revenge on the Puritans. You know, what would Cotton Mather <laughs> say? If Cotton Mather could be standing here right now and watching these people kiss this statue or, you know, stop the statue and pray to the statue in the street because they believe that this is, they did not, again, believe is the wrong word. This is the reality of this figure. They'd be horrified. And I mean, so was a non-Italian Catholic church. They were also horrified. Yeah, I mean, I think these feasts, it's funny because like at, at one perspective, you could say it's a pretty simple thing. Like a bunch of people get together and they take the statue and they parade it through the streets. But on another perspective, it's such a deep thing. Like if you look into the tradition of it, like you were just explaining a little bit, Robert, and how they brought it over. And so it's really like perspective. I mean, we started looking into this stuff more because we started doing this podcast. So we started, I mean, I know I've been read a bunch of books on Italian-American history and some Italian history. And it's such a fascinating thing when you start to uncover some of the origins of these traditions. Oh, they were so important. And again, they were not innocent. They defined who is prominent, who the prominent people were in the community, who got to be closest to the statue, who got to dress the statue. Oh, These I didn't know all, that stuff, really. They were all very important things. And, you know, in East Harlem, when it became Spanish Harlem and the festa continued, Puerto Rican Catholics were just not welcome. And the festa was really of the performance of exclusion. It was the performance of the exclusion of Puerto Ricans. And, you know, these Italians would march through these neighborhoods, which was gradually, they were gradually leaving. You know, many of these Italians were coming back for the festa. And, you know, they made it pretty clear that Puerto Ricans were not welcome. Puerto Rican Catholics were not welcome. One of my most vivid memories of the festa, this was in the 90s, I think, was walking through the streets of now Spanish Harlem and watching Puerto Ricans, you know, wash their cars as the festa passed and, you know, shout out to each other across the street. because. I mean, it just wasn't their festa. They were made to not welcome in that festa. So these festas were way, they were very complicated things. I mean, men and women had particular roles. Children had particular roles. And there's good food. There's that. There's always great food. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's the foundation of our moral life, really. It's good food. You know, I sometimes think with my kids, they could almost do anything as long as they ate good food. As long as they cared about food, yep. they were fine with me. <laughs> so true. It's another thing, though, that we talk about, uh, just like we talked about before with Italian-Americans, younger Italian-Americans not being so aware of how low Italian immigrants were on the on the ladder. It's the same thing that we talk about on the show sometimes is that the food, the food was simple because they were immigrants and they were farmers and they didn't have a lot. And of course, it's evolved over time. But, you know, I think back now to the pasta and beans and the different dishes that we had when we were young and understanding some of the history behind it. I don't know. It just brings a whole nother perspective to it. Oh, I loved it. I mean, I was so happy in the 80s. I sound like I keep vendettas. I mean, I, I, maybe I do. <laughs> but I was so happy in the 80s when all of a sudden it became chic and, and kind of to eat the food that when I was growing up, we were all ashamed. I mean, you wouldn't like who knew? Right. Who knew bacala then? I mean, who, you know, now you can go like to the fanciest restaurants and get bacala with, you know, with that, with whatever. I watch people call it bacala or scungili, and I think, yeah. <laughs> but when I was little, there were grocery stores in the Bronx that sold this, but it was hard. You had to go to the Bronx to find it or Brooklyn. You were not going to get it in Manhattan necessarily. It's Certainly so not true. on the Upper East Side. So, Robert, before we go forward and then, you know, wrap up a little bit here, I would just want to take a leap backwards because we kind of got talking here and got carried away, as Italians will do. You said your father was an immigrant, correct, from right. from the north. Your mother was born here. You know, who, who goes to Yale and wins a Guggenheim and has, you know, such an illustrious academic career. I am just would like to hear a little bit about how you went from – the son of an immigrant and a Lower East Side Italian-American to that? That's a very important and complicated question. Uh, <laughs> I try. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure I could do it justice quickly. Fair enough. You know, I mean, I also taught at Harvard. I had a chair at Harvard for many years before teaching at, uh, I taught at Indiana University. And, uh, you know, it's a very complicated question. 
Well, do you feel like it's been, was it a natural road? I mean, was it, oh, were you just like a very bright child and it was always known that, you know, Robert was going to go to Yale and do these things or was it something that kind of developed later on? No, I mean, I think uh, like when I graduated from eighth grade, I went to a Catholic school. I got the medals. Uh, I recently discovered this because I was sort of thinking about these questions, actually. And uh, I got the medals. When I graduated, I was given the medals for religion and history. And so I thought, well, look at that. I mean, already in eighth grade, and I had forgotten that. I had no recollection of that. And I thought, wow, look at this. So, so obviously, I've been on a path. I've been very blessed. And if you look at my career, as you said, I should not complain. And I'm not going <laughs> to complain. You know, I'm not going to complain because I, you know, I, I was accepted at Harvard. And, but I have been struck again and again by how exotic Italian-Americans are at this level of academia. Yeah. I mean, there were times when I used to say, earlier in my career, I used to say that at any academic gathering, I supplied the emotion. <laughs> um, I love that. And that after, over time, people actually looked to me to supply the emotion. It was like, well, let's see what Bob is going to say. I was recently asked to give to a comment on a, on a panel. I won't tell you the university where this was. You know, I gave my response. The organizer came over to me and said, yes, exactly. That's exactly the kind of emotion we wanted in this panel. And I thought, see, 40 years later, it's still happening. So I think Italian-Americans, yeah, I don't take for granted my place in the academy. Look, I'm sitting in an office at Harvard right now talking to you from the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. I mean, I am not going to complain. And I've been accepted here. And I have a lot of friends at Harvard. And, and there's been no question, no question. Actually, Harvard, of all the places I've taught, I think Harvard in many ways, was the most accepting. But that doesn't take away this fact of exoticism. So interesting. Eric. Like in this day and age, you can still feel that. And I, I mean, that's why I asked the question, because it's a fact. I mean, it's the truth. You know, we had Gates Elise on, and uh, we did a two-part episode with him. And in one of those, he spoke about this. He said, you know, even today, Italian-Americans in do not attend these Ivy League schools, these the Yales and the Harvards, in remarkable numbers. They're still they going don't. to... St. John's and, and schools like that, yeah. All excellent schools. but you know, also, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It also is class, right? I mean, if the next time you're in the Bronx, I mean, it's a big corner. Gun Hill Road and Webster Avenue is where my grandmother lived until she died in 1984. I mean, you'd be shocked at the building. Right. It's a run-down tenement in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Your book is obviously still out there. You said it's in, it's in colleges and universities. Do you ever get engaged by younger Italian-Americans on the topics that you've researched and that you've <laughs> written about? Like, what is the response from that generation? Yeah, I mean, I do. I think they might remember these things that I'm talking about from their grandparents. I have to say that success in America, or maybe success in the modern world generally, means that you have to abandon some of the things. It sounds like I'm saying this prescriptively, but I'm really just saying it descriptively. There are certain things you have to abandon. So, like, if you're going to walk around with a horn around your neck, you know, one of those horns, that's going to be a problem in your law firm. That's just an obvious expression of this. But there are ways of being in the modern world that are tolerable and others that are not. And I think this is not critical. This is just an observation. Over time, some of the intensity of the kind of devotional world that we're talking about has ebbed among Italian-Americans. Although then, you know, I, having said that, and then I go to churches in New Jersey, sort of working class churches in New Jersey or Connecticut or wherever, and I see Italian-Americans without doing research in these places, it seems to me that they're behaving in much the same way as the Italian-Americans were in the 1950s. So, That's interesting. Well, you know, I wear the horn. As I don't wear it to some places, though. Right. On Sundays when, I, when I'm going to my aunt's for dinner, I put on the horn and my cross. But yeah, you know, it's true. If I'm going on the job interview, though, I don't wear it. Yeah, I, well, I remember once I was in a swimming pool in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, where I was teaching at Indiana University, which is another great place. Sitting there was a friend of mine who was Jewish, who was also from New York City, and he had a Star of David, a gold, we had our shirts off because we were in the water with our kids, and he had a gold Star of David, and I had a cross, and I was self-consciously wearing this cross, this gold cross. I was self-consciously <laughs> wearing it to identify with Italian, mm. you know, to show that I was an Italian-American in this place, Bloomington, Indiana, where, let me tell you, there weren't a lot of Italian-Americans, although there were Italian-Americans further south in Indiana who were uh, stone carvers, but that's another story. In Bloomington, there weren't any. And we stood out. God, did we stand out. It was like uh, my friend's wife came over and said, well, you can tell the only two ethnics in this pool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, you wear it now as, you know, maybe if it's not a matter of course, you wear it as a, an expression of something that you're aware you're expressing. Yeah, and then Madonna, of course, made it also fashionable. That's right. Right. The rosary yeah. suddenly became a fashion. I haven't been able to pull that off, but I do I do, do the gold cross now and then. <laughs> why Why do you say that you haven't been able to pull it off? You don't want to use the rosary that it's, way? Yeah, or? I can't. I can't do it. You know, it's for me, it's like a whole, you know, it's more of a holy prayer bead. I completely understand that. Yeah, I'm not that iconoclastic. Uh-uh. I'm used to seeing them hanging in windows, my grandmother's and my, my mother, but... Right. right. Exactly. Anyway, Robert, listen, we want to thank you for coming on the Italian American podcast. I kid you not that Dolores and I could talk to you for five more hours straight about this stuff. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed talking to you. But we do thank you so much. And we're definitely going to link up to Robert's books in our show notes here so you can check them out. I know that I'm going to do some more reading on these subjects as well. And I have a feeling, Robert, that we'll probably be reaching out to you in the future and maybe coming up with a different topic that if you're willing to, we'll probably ask you to come on again and dive into it with us. It was really a pleasure to talk to you both, Dolores and Anthony. It's been a nice conversation. Thanks. All right, now it's time for the Italian-American story segment of the episode. This is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, and we try to play a recording or a story from one of our listeners or our own relatives or even read something that a listener submitted. And in today's segment, as we mentioned earlier, Dolores is going to play an excerpt from a longer recording. Basically, today it's going to be focused around dream interpretation. Dolores, with your mom, your aunt, and a couple other women, is that right? That's right, Anthony. So just a, a few things around the table talking in this audio, you'll hear Rena Candela Betty and Rosa Candela Cassisi. They're two sisters and you would have heard them in other episodes. I know Rena was in both our Christmas episode and the How to Make Sopressata episode. Rosa was also in our Christmas episode. You'll be able to decipher their different voices if you just listen for a little. Their mother, Angelina, who is turning 90 in several months. Wow. Yeah, God bless her. And my mother, of course. So you'll hear men's voices chiming in here and there. That that would be their brother, Angelo, and my aunt, Binuch, who we, who we talk about a lot in this episode. Her husband, Frank, is there with us, too, in the kitchen. We know we had dinner together. We ate some gnocchi. We drank wine. And then I turned on the recorder, and we started talking. So it does get loud at times. This is a it's a bunch of, you know, Italians and Italian-Americans around the kitchen table talking. So just bear with that kind of loudness. And also, uh, Angelina, she speaks, you know, Italian. She speaks pretty quickly. So if you hear her speaking Italian for longer stretches, just hang in there. Both Rena and I try to keep up with her and translate what she's saying at some point. So just keep on listening. Anthony, this was a really cool conversation for me to have. As we mentioned in the intro, there's a lot more that we get into, but today we're going to just talk about dreams and, and listening to your dreams, which is, according to the Southern Italian and uh, Italian-American women, is really just a way of listening to your inner self. I tried them. I don't think they're great. You made them? Yeah. But who t who taught you all these things? Your grandmother taught you. Okay. Yeah. And, and yeah, she's about to turn 90. She's saying she remembers everything from her grandma. So, I mean, really, there are kind of things I'm not sure how to explain. You know, what I, you, you understand better. It's like, really, um, I'm okay. I think a wine is probably good enough. Anybody want limoncello? Mommy's cheeks are so red. <laughs> I'm tired. And she had wine. She had wine. Back then, when my mother and your mother were young, even when I was young, I remember, you know, we yeah, they didn't have TVs back then. Mm -hmm. So they think they used to talk, they used to sit and, and work, you know, do things, and they would talk amongst each other or by true. the fireplace, okay? Right. And they would talk about their dreams, and they would talk about things. Oh, look what happened here. This, I had a dream about this. And, oh, my God, you know, we felt this coming or stuff like that. Back then, I was more 
intense and it's you get older you know yeah as the generation go on people stop don't believe it the way we believe it right you know right right yeah but like you said now you're starting to believe it because as you get older you start to feel that in yeah in, in, yeah you know what i'm saying yeah you feel it in you right. yeah so yeah. Ma, quando tu eri un figlio, diciamo, no, come cominciava a parlare nel suono, o che le mosse succede questo, ma ci sono di questo, o qualcuno diceva, oh, mamma, guarda che succede. Ci accontavamo il suono, mamma ci accontava nel suono. Come you just she just said, when she was with her mother by the fire, yeah. Certe cose dica, e tanti non è vero proprio che ti stanno leggendo, come non ne sanno su cose. She's saying here, right? She's like, she learned things that people here don't even seem to know, and she doesn't understand how they don't know it. She knows these prayers that her grandmother taught her, like back, you know, back in the sense, you know? Right. Tutti in giù come a casa, sono gli che vedi mani da nonni, And you said sleep like two, three people in the bed. Right, right, right. Quando va nonni. And she would tell her grandmother the dream. Her grandma would tell her what it means, yeah. Okay, so she would say that dream means, you know, don't go outside because people are going to give you malocchio, it's going to be, right? Well, she would tell her I had a dream about snakes, and what happens is, I'll tell you what the snakes so did it help her though in her life i think that's what i want to do like it why is it useful she can see, you know, like, close her eyes a little bit and she can see and stuff. Like people who are not here? People who are dead? Right. And how does that help? Like, what does that do for her? Well, with the rustling. <laughs> She's feeling yucky off of aluminum foil. Yes, that's what's going to happen in the background. To freeze them, yeah. <laughs> So it gave her comfort. Yeah. So basically, in that story, she's back in. She had to go back to Italy. Well, we were, we came in '68 and we went back. My, 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 she was no, no, no. Yes. Oh, she dreamt all that. Oh, I missed that part. Okay. Okay. It's comfort. So she, she, you had to go back to Italy. She went, we went back to Italy because we didn't like Ohio, so we went back to Italy. Then we came, when we were in Italy, we wanted to come back here. She was all upset, but right. whatever. And she dreamt, you know. Uh, she, yeah, she went to, there was an old lady in her town, and she says, don't worry, you're going to go back. So, in right. back of her mind, it gave the comfort, knowing, you know what, I think I believe in this dream that I am going to go back. So right. So, it gave the comfort. And then, you know, 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 you know
She was at peace then in her mind. She knew that she was going to come back here. Yeah. Right. So that. Yeah, she's getting. She says when she thinks about it, she gets uh, goosebumps. Yeah, goosebumps. Well, I remember a story from when we were little. Um, I hope I'm remembering it right, but I always tell people this story when. You know, Drew likes to, like, joke at me, calls me a witch. Because I'll say, I knew it. I had a feeling. I knew that was going to happen. Or yeah. I'll say to him, don't do that. Or or even, like, if it's just superstition. Like, you know, I'll knock on wood and he'll say, yeah, fa la la He'll say it in you know. He'll say it in his own way. Cece, yeah, no. So I remember... I'll tell people the story of to try to explain as an example. And I remember you dreamt one night when we were little, right? And we were all like, I was like in grade school and all, and they were maybe in high school that somebody liked you before daddy. You met daddy in Italy, right? I was thinking the same thing. You were thinking about it. You want to tell, do you want to tell the story? Yeah. You would like, I was was working at the Yeah, I was You were like four. Yeah. Maybe close to five. Uh, It was this guy from Italy uh, they used to, his name was Julio. I don't know how did that happen because my sister, my first sister, I was always afraid of her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she liked this guy because this guy was friend with my brother. Right. My brother died just because he was friend. Oh, he's good guy. Right. I was afraid of my sister. Right. My sister, if you would have said no, bon bon. <laughs> <laughs> so I see my eyes. I find myself with this guy, and I didn't even know it. How did it happen? Like they, they like arranged no, it for her. No, she didn't no. like him. And I used to tell him all the time, I don't like you. I don't want you. Get oh, out of here. Can you imagine? I no, no, I guess not. He liked her. He liked you. We were here at the house where we live now. It was like year, two, three years we were living there. Yeah. But I must have been older, Ma, because I remember this. I couldn't have been that little. Yeah. Maybe what time? What time? Okay. You got to say it in English. All right. <laughs> and I, I dream, I dream, I dream about this guy. I dream about this guy. And this guy came and knocked on my door. And I said to him, I said, what are you doing over here? He says, I don't want you. Just like that. I don't want you. I want your husband. Oh, my God. I said, he was dead. He was, right. yeah. I, I said, no, no, no. He's the way you. And I said, why you want my husband for? Oh, I need you, husband. Oh, need my you. God, that would scare me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I woke up in the morning. It was like 7, 7.30. John was gone. I called my sister-in-law, Stephanie. Yeah. And I said, John, it's day. He says, she says, no. I said, oh, my God. And he had the paper. I was, I was so scared. Yeah. I called John and he called me back. I said, what are you doing? He says, no, we're here. We tried to cut the trees down. I oh. says, no. I says, don't do anything. Just leave everything the way it is. Send the guys home and come home. He said, why? And I told him that. Said, okay, I'll come home just to make you happy. I said, okay, just come home. He came home. It was like uh, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We had a dog, a hunting dog. Yeah. She had a puppy. Right. So and we had the chihuahua. I don't know what happened. The chihuahua went outside, mm-hmm. and he went by these puppies. Oh. The hunting dog, maybe the other day, he, she was going yeah, yeah. to hurt the, the puppy. Oh, no. Killed her? And it killed the dog. And the hunting dog bite my chihuahua. Right on top of here. Uh, right in the back of the neck. And all of a sudden, she was young. Because I was outside crazy. playing. Yeah. And the dog was, you know, barking like yeah, crazy. Yeah. I was thought maybe they would buy her. Yeah. I went outside. She was screaming because Coco was, uh, no, the dog by. She was screaming. We got the dog to the hospital. 
the dog died. Yeah. And I said, that's the dream. Yeah. I had it today. Yeah. Right. So if a John would be a word, he could have been the one. He would have been the one who died yeah. instead of the instead dog. Of the dog. So yeah. do and I believe in the dream. Do you believe if you didn't have the dream, it would have happened anyway? Yes. Yeah, yes. but the dream helped save it. I believe the yeah. dream saved. saved. Because he came home, he didn't do what he had to do because that day he had to do a dangerous job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he came home at the dream, yeah. turned around, turned around and instead of taking your husband to the dog. And everybody knows, that's not because I, everybody, yeah. I told everybody. Yeah. I told oh, everybody. she didn't let us go to school yeah. I didn't let everything. Yeah. Yeah. We're all, I remember we were all home. It was like a... It was like a Tuesday, you know? I was just saying you have to believe this kind of stuff. And now, for anybody who's listening who might who might think, like, oh, give me a break. It's just coincidence. No, I, I, I want to say also that what could have happened is just my mother's intuition. Right. And it came in the form of that dream. Right, like, yes. and it doesn't have to be, like, the old guy who liked her. And, you know, it's just... Yeah. The way it comes, the message come doesn't yeah, matter. It comes, yeah. yeah, it's just, it, it was her intuition that right, said right, something right. bad is going to happen right. today. Right. And you could have ignored it like a lot of people do, but you listened. Yeah. You yeah. listened because to I, it. Because I grow up with that stuff. Exactly. Yeah, my mother right. scares the crap out of us, so we yeah. believe it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's sick. Yeah. yeah. We believe it. That's why we are. Right. That's why we're the we are. I'll tell you a couple of dreams. One of them was when... It was back maybe 20 years ago when um, it was the last time I drove to my mother-in-law. I drove to yeah. my mother-in-law. Remember, Rob? He's in the hospital. I drove to my mother-in-law, and I woke up them. And the dream was that it was in my bedroom, and Keith is laying in my bed in the bedroom. My mother-in-law was standing next to him. And uh, and she just goes like this. Her like, mother-in-law was dead, just to let you know. Right, my mother-in-law was dead. And she just was sitting there with Keith in the bed, and she just went like this, you know? I woke up the morning and says, I do not like this dream. Something, something is going to happen. So I said to him, please be careful. And like this, you meant, you're she making the motion. She's just nodding her head. That everything would be yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Like something is going to happen, but everything is going to mm-hmm, be okay. Mm-hmm. So he goes to work. I said to Keith, just be careful. You know, I don't know. I had this weird dream about your mother. Within 20 minutes, he comes back home. He falls on the floor, and he goes, take me to the hospital. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, so I went up taking him to the hospital. He had to get operated, and the dream was, yeah, something is going to happen to him, but he's going to be okay, which it did. Right. Yeah. Right. And you can say, oh, well, your mother-in-law didn't come back from the dead to tell you that, or you can believe that she did. Oh, yeah, they do. To me, either way, you have something inside of you, and not just you. All of us, right. and now we're. I'm, for some instance, want to believe it. Some don't. You have right. something in right. you that tells you things right. like that. Just like right. your mom was telling the story of not of wanting to go back to America and being right. so upset, and then right. she dreamt of that woman telling her, "Don't worry, you're right. gonna go," and it, and it gave her That's peace. Right. Hey, it was the same thing when your dad passed away. Right. Your dad had passed away, and Pinocchio invited you guys over for... Oh, um, yeah, dinner. I remember this. I had no... I didn't talk to your mother. I didn't talk to Pinocchio. I didn't talk to anybody. Rose and I were in the car. We're driving. I was like, oh, you know what? I got to call Pinocchio. I had a dream last night about John. And he says, tell Agumar, Pastor was really good last night. Yeah, I remember so this. Like, so I called her up, and I said, Pinocchio, John said, Pastor was good. And Pinocchio started crying. I was like... Wait, I only said possible. So why are you crying? And then I felt better. I'm like, what did I say? Yeah. You're in the corner. I says, what did I say? She's like, and she goes, I know you didn't talk to stuff. You didn't come over. You had no nothing about it. I made possible so and I even had it in. Everybody all for dinner yeah, last night. That's exactly what we have. How would I know that? Ifazul were from the garden. Right. So she had the fresh beans, beans from the garden, and she made pasta fazul. And yeah. it was, I can still remember it. You know that? It was so good. Because the beans were fresh. The beans too. were yeah, fresh. Were and, and I remember we were, my, my father's sister was here from Italy, and mom, you were there, mommy, and me. And we were all like, Kuma, this pasta fazul is so good. And it was, it, we were almost um, like excessive and how good, how much we were saying that. Of course, Pinuch got upset when you t- like and started crying, emotional, because right, she knew right. that he was, he was there, and right. and we all also felt the same way. Yeah. So, she says you have to believe in this, or else you won't dream of them anymore. I think that's true. I think that's true. Right. Right. They won't come to you anymore. Yeah. I, 
I believe in the dream so much. I do believe Does she remember when she was little, like how people dreamt about the dead or talked about the dead? Quando tu eri creatura, a gente quando quando si parlava nei morti o si sognava nei morti, che dicevano? Allora, se ne erano morti, proprio dicevano che vero che non sognano che devi sognare, come funzionava, diceva, figlia mia, se tu non ci credi a quello che dicono con bene, tu non ti sognano nessuno che... Ma che cosa si sognavano? Si sognavano i loro, o che vanno in damiciadino con tanta figura, Oh, so she's saying that a lot of the dreams people have of dead people, they'll be like in a garden with a, lo- a lot of flowers, and it means that they're praying for you and that they love you. And she's saying about a dream she had about my aunt. Yeah, it means peace. Well, your mother. I was just thinking about the white flowers. Is that what we're talking about? Or You were the white flower? It's so funny. It all comes out. You know, when you start thinking about it. Lucy, the one that passed away. This is What do you mean you never dream? What is that about? I dreamed about Pinuch that it was a mother's birthday. Right. And she said. Yeah, she says she dreams her every week. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was actually I do believe in that because of the flowers and stuff because Lucy Seth, you tell her the dream because she told you the dream. Yeah, I think I told you. Yeah, I remember what you're saying. Lucy, uh, I was We had we had a friend who was very young and she was sick. Yeah. And I mean she was what, not even forty or forty? No, she was when she died she was thirty seven. Yeah. She was like thirty six. Oh, when she was, she was me, so uh, young because I came from work and Antonella called me she says please go by my cousin's house uh, she didn't feel good she's very down so I went over there I talked to her and she says Stephanie she says I don't know what it is but it's been a week and a half I dream about John it's my father time. and my uncle Mario she said all the time and the dream, it's always the same. And she was dreaming that they were like in the garden. Mm-hmm. It was like six people around the table. It was wine on the mm-hmm. table. And I say, well, it's John. Mm-hmm. And, it's John. There's a table and wine. It's John. Could never be without a wine on the table. And it was bad, like, from here mm-hmm. to go where they were. That's how she explained it to me. Mm-hmm. And Lucy went over there, and John said to her, says, Lucy, come here, don't be afraid. Look over here. We, It's so nice over here, so peacefully. We all together, mm-hmm. we eat, we mm-hmm. drink. And she was afraid to go over. Mm-hmm. And she was dreaming the same Right, for a week dream. and a half. For 12 days, yeah. two weeks on the road. Right. And she said to me, what did she try to tell me? That I got to die? That I'm going to die? I said to her, I said, why do you think like that? Right. She I said, she but that's what it was. Yeah, because a year later, she died. She died. Was it even a year later? I don't think it was. A year later. She died. She died. She died. And then her mother, which is my grandmother, took Pinuccio's hand right. and says, let go of my daughter. Right. I, I don't want her to go with you. Right. So she's no, she's 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 she can't she come, with, come you. with you. Right. She died. And there's a lot of dreams like that. Right. I know we talked, you and I talked, because me and Mommy, if, you know, times when I've been living with her. You're not ready. 
No, because if you if you do go with them, you're crossing over. You, right. That means you're gonna die. Right. You're right. Gonna die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fight the most on the same. Most some gulliani do in the yard. Those are on the fifth one. But same in those are the most. She says she always dreams of my father yeah. in the garden. Yeah. Same. Which would mean that he's he's always praying for you, and and it's like love. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because he was. Same, same thing yeah. with Lucy's dream, you know. Right. It's like that was telling her that, yeah, like her time was coming, but it was right. also, if let's say she had been ready to go, which I don't blame her at 36, right. my God, right. who's yeah. ready to go. She's scared, but like it was also telling her that there are people here on the right. other side who love, right. you, who love you and yeah. are praying for you and, and they're here because right. it was in a garden and it was always, she always said it was like really green. Right. She said every night, yeah. same dream, green, yeah. same, the flower. I told in the interview, our listeners would have just listened heard I told the story about when Alexis you knew Alexis was pregnant right three weeks right. before she even told her mother right mm-hmm. now didn't really matter in the long scheme of things right. whether you knew you had that dream or you didn't have that dream right. Alexis was still pregnant right. but it's kind of beautiful to know that you have a deeper connection mm-hmm. to what's going on right you know what I mean right. at the underneath everything right and you know what I like you said before, we're all so busy, Dolores. Yeah. That, you know, we make our own destiny sometime, and I think good dreams are trying to tell us some of our mm, destinies. I agree. I really do. Mm-hmm. A lot of times mm-hmm. your dreams are trying to tell us, you know what? Maybe if you take this right and not make that left, That's you, right. know, you might be okay. Right. And sometimes we don't listen to that, and That's we, right. we do make our own destiny, and I do believe in that. That's all when, you, all when you dream, what happens when you dream in the morning? You have to wake up very slowly. That's how you remember you do. If you wake up real fast, you will no, forget she, she them. Don't right, she's you saying don't shake your head, your head and just wake up. And also, they tell us that you can't say you dream until after you, do, you have breakfast of the sunrises. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's what I always say. Yeah? yeah. The sun's gonna rise. So don't tell anybody else your dream. You what? In the morning. Before you wake up. Oh, right before you wake up. I I always try to lay in bed and for a minute and think about my dreams right. before that's I open my eyes. Yeah, right. I do. Yeah, because that's how I remember that. That's how you remember. Yeah. If you wake up real fast, you don't remember. All right, so I hope you enjoyed this episode, our conversation with Robert and Dolores's little, uh, I call it a little excerpt, but there's a lot going on there, as Dolores explained to us. I mean, it's a bunch of Italian-Americans getting together. So, Dolores, why don't you take us out? All right. So, Anthony, we have a lot of amazing things, as you know, coming up. We are launching the new neighborhood, A Place for Italian-Americans. This is going to be a vibrant private group. It's for members only. So it's just another level, another dimension of connecting with other Italian Americans and helping you to enrich your culture and some other very exciting things that we'll announce going forward. So if you want to stay in the loop with all of that, please consider joining us via email. You can visit italianamericanexperience.com and click on the join us tab. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Italian American. We're on Twitter at Ital American and we're on Facebook at Italian American Podcast. Salute! Salute.